All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for coming out. I appreciate it. Monday night football, and they're here anyway. Um, the Tennessee Titans are ahead 7-0. You'll be glad to know. Um, I'll keep you updated. No, I have no idea. But it's true. They are up 7-0. Um, last time we did the origins of the Greek world. From now on, I'll do uh, major figures as we go forward. But I wanted to just lay out the background of where the Greek world is coming from, and I think that'll be clearer why I wanted to do that tonight as we prepare for Socrates. Everybody from zero to Socrates is called the pre-Socratics, which will give you an idea of how important Socrates is considered in the history of philosophy. There's like everything before Socrates and everything after him is sort of the post-Socratics. Uh, this, is, this is, you know, sort of the estimation of his importance in the history of, of world philosophy. So to begin, uh, we're going we're gonna to do two figures tonight. Anaximander, uh, who will stand in for the Miletian school, which is an entire school of philosophy that begins with Thales and sort of culminates with the atomists and Democritus uh, is a major figure. So, but we'll start, I'll use Anaximander as sort of the guy that represents them. Um, and then the Pythagorean, Pythagoras, who stands in for the Pythagorean school, um, also known as the Italian school for, for reasons that I'll explain. Um, and so those two between them really give us the major threads of, of the origins of Western philosophy. And, and hopefully I can tease that out. It's a lot of ground to cover. Um, if I'm going too fast, please raise your hand because this is, this is a big one. I, as I was preparing this, I was like, wow, we're covering a lot of ground tonight. So uh, to begin with, remember, so we have the Homeric heroes that we went over last time. We have the Iliad and the Odyssey. We've got these anthropomorphic gods who behave in sort of human fashion, very human, in fact, all too human fashion, one might say, um, who create all kinds of troubles for heroes. The ethical life is clearly defined as the heroic life. What you want to do is earn fame by, by following the rules of heroism and either conquering your enemies, in which case you win fame, good, or being defeated, in which case you die early, which is better than doing nothing. There was no concept of an afterlife. Now the background of the Olympic gods is crazy. I love it. Uh, it's one of the great creation myths uh, of all time. And I want to run through that quickly because in, to get to the Greek gods. In the beginning was chaos was figured as a character. All this is moderately to very anthropomorphic. Um, and then through some manifestations, Chaos arises from chaos arises the abyss and arises eros, love, very early. And this is sort of incarnate natural forces, not quite, you know, physical human-like gods yet, but sort of identifiable natural, like, you know, abyss, chaos, love sort of rising up. And they give birth through very strange modes to the titans. And there's a whole bunch of titans. But the most important thing about the... Um, no, I'm sorry, yeah, the, the, the original forces give birth to the Titans. And I, I wrote these down. They're uh, Coes, Trias, Cronus, Hyperion, Hypatus, and Oceanus. And there's some women too. Minmaze, Phoebe, Rhea, Thea, Themis, and Tethys. Um, but Cronus, importantly, kills his father and becomes king of the gods. So this is the Titans ruling the ancient world. So you go from total chaos and natural forces to these really wild gods 
who do things like kill their fathers. Now they're sort of bestial gods. Big, dangerous, and scary. Well, there is a myth, or there's a, 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 it was foretold, most of this comes from Hesiod, by the way, uh, it was foretold that, like Cronus was killed his father, one of Cronus' children will kill him and usurp him on the throne. This would be Zeus. Uh, so he eats all his children, which does not make his wife, who's also his sister, very happy, <laughs> as you can well imagine. So he eats child after child after child. There's a pile, I forget how many, a lot. He eats a lot of children when they're first born to prevent them from killing him. So his wife becomes upset by this, Rhea. Um, and, and so instead of giving him Zeus when he's born, she wraps a rock in swaddling clothes and gives it to him, which he immediately swallows and thinks, ha ha, I have killed Zeus. And she shuffles Zeus off. Eventually, Zeus grows up. I don't know how you hide this, but anyway, Zeus grows up and, and drugs his father. And when he gets sick with the drug, he throws up all his, Zeus's brothers and sisters who have since matured inside of Cronus' stomach. I, I told you this was good stuff, did I? I mean, you can't make this up. Uh, somebody could, I could. Uh, I was able to. So, uh, so then Zeus um, proceeds to challenge Kronos to, to a battle, which in various stories turns out various ways. A common story is that Zeus castrates him. Um, and this, this kills his father. But you know exactly what the story is. There's many versions of this. But most importantly, Zeus and Zeus's brothers and sisters then rule Olympus. And this sets up a teleology. Teleology is the idea that history has a direction. Um, teleology is the idea that we're going someplace. In this case, you go from chaos, total chaos and abyss and, and, and sort of madness to the Titans. Yeah, not so chaotic, but not so great either to the Olympic gods, which are, you know, basically big, scary, dangerous humans that live forever. Um, that's essentially what they are in the Greek mythos. And this teleology is pretty clear that things are in fact getting better. We're becoming more orderly and more civilized. So as crazy as the Greek gods seem to us, to the Greeks they seemed a lot better than what came before them. Um, the Titans and, 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 and like I said, the just chaos. Also, it was a very big well, I don't know if it was improvement. It was a, ch a change towards human abstraction from the various local cults and, and very sort of uh, primitive mythological systems that the Greek world was displacing as it spread out and became more powerful. Um, and it's important to note here that the establishment of the Homeric god myths, the gods from the Homeric myths, was a state religion. This was not, like, if you got conquered, they didn't say, hey, how would you feel about believing in Zeus? They said, believe in Zeus or we'll kill you. Uh, and so it was enforced as the colonies expanded and they spread out. It was, lit it was a state-sponsored, state-supported religion um, that anywhere the Greek conquerors went, which, of course, when you get Alexander in the program, it means everywhere, uh, it, it, it was enforced on people. And so this is how it took over. It's also important to note that in the ancient Greek world, they did not have any such idea as religion. So that re religion is a Latin word, uh, which means sort of to rebind or retie or to tie really tight. Uh, not a Greek word. 
In the Greek world, they had no idea of belief. I mean, they knew people believed things. They just had no interest in it. It was what you did. Everything in the Greek world is what are you going to do? This will come up when we get to Socrates. This will come up when we get to Pythagoras. The notion of obeying the religious system of the Greek world was you do the right things at the right times. There's a sunrise festival on Wednesday at 9. You're there with something to slaughter. Uh, there's a, a sacrificial you know, parade that goes on the first of spring and everybody brings a bale of wheat. You're there with a bale of wheat. It doesn't matter what you believe. If anybody seen Tibetan prayer wheels? I love this idea. There are these wheels that have prayers inscribed on it. You just walk by and hit them. <laughs> it's so much easier than praying, right? The wheel does it, right? The wheel, you don't. It's not about what you believe. You don't have to. All you do is you spin the wheel. This is exactly what the Greeks. This is where they were at. It's not what you believe. It's not what you say. It's the specific actions that you carry out. Also, it's not actions as in good and evil, of which they have almost no concept. It's actions in the sense of, do you go to the temple and do the right obeisances? Do you, do you go on the right dates to do the right sort of things? It's not about how you treat your neighbors. You could go out and kill your neighbor every morning and then go to the temple and they would say, well, he's a pretty good guy. Right? They would not, they just because you're doing what you're supposed to do, killing your neighbor is bad, right? They're going to be upset with you about that, but you are still a perfectly good religious person. So it had no prescription about behavior. And this is important. If you read the Iliad and the Odyssey, you'll see this because the heroes do crazy stuff. And then they'll somehow offend a god. And everyone's like, oh, they offended a god. And they're like, well, they just sacked seven cities and killed all the inhabitants. <laughs> and that didn't seem to bother anybody. Well, it didn't because they didn't, they didn't care. But, you know, if you tip over a temple or take the wrong, like the, the daughter of a priest of Apollo, ooh, Kill everybody else in the city, that's fine. But now you're in trouble because that's Apollo's person. And so really their concept of religion was almost totally divorced from ethics, as we understand it. Their ethical system was based almost entirely on the heroic ideals. Yeah? Can we, can we just ask, I've never been, can we like ask a question in the middle of... Uh, sure, if it's a quick one. Okay, yeah, it's a quick one. So... Back to the thing with, you, yeah, you can't kill Apollo's, um, you know, person. Does that account after the fact? Like, after there's already been repercussions? Like, they, they've now given their, there's an excuse now why something bad has happened to you. It's probably because you took... You, you did something bad to the gods. Yeah. Right. So the repercussions never come from doing bad things to other people. It always comes from doing bad things to the gods. So, so they. Did, I mean, I don't. I can't think of a single instance in either the Iliad or the Odyssey where anybody got in trouble for doing anything to a person. It's always you get in trouble for beating on, in some way, offending the gods, and sometimes you don't even know you've offended the gods. So this is one. So, so they have no, like I said, so no ethics as we understand it in that sense. <coughs> now, this. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, did all the city states share the same god? Uh, yes and no. So again, it was enforced. It was a very top-down, and, and as the, you know, like the Delian League from Athens spread out, absolutely. But every city had their own heroes, and so there was sort of a mix of the overarching of the Homeric Olympic gods, underwritten with local deities. In fact, Athena, who was born out of Zeus's head, there is there is an argument that that came about because Athens was 
too powerful to be forced to submit to the Olympic system because they worshipped Athena before that. And so when Athens was incorporated into the Greek system, larger Greek system, which doesn't start in Athens, um, they were forced to take in a, a, Athena. It's the same way the Catholic Church became the Church of Mary. It's because the, the Mary cults were so strong all over, all over Europe, they couldn't stomp it out. So finally they just said, well, screw that, we're going to worship Mary. And we're going to pretend like we did that the whole time. Yeah. Uh, and so same thing with Athens. So, so, but, but, so it was usually a mix of local heroes uh, with their own temples um, and the overarching Homeric gods, which you had to follow in a very prescribed manner. Which brings us to about the 6th century, or exactly the 6th century. Let's say exactly. Let's be arbitrarily exact. Um, and, and, and a city called Miletus. And this is the birthplace of the Miletian school because it's home of Thales, um, Anaximander, and Anaximus. I think that's how you say his name. Uh, but, so I want to focus on Anaximander as sort of the spokesperson for this school. It starts about 6th century. Now Miletus is important, oh, on your map. Uh, if you look, it, it's not actually on your map, but you see where it says Asian, Asia Minor? Is that, can you see that? Did everybody get a map? If you go left from Asia Minor till you hit the ocean, that's Miletus, right there. Just draw a straight line from Asia Minor when you hit the coast, right there on the coast is Miletus. Now, the, the reason I wanted to give you this map, which you should bring every time, assuming you ever come back again, um, <laughs> is, is to, to get a sense of this. If you go straight down from Miletus, what do you hit? Egypt. Right? If you go right, where it says Asia Minor, that is Persia. If you go straight up, you're into Thracia and Macedon. Does that make, do you see how that works? It, it was a crossroads of the ancient world. All the trade routes from Egypt, the overland trade routes, trade routes from the Black Sea are passing through Miletus at this time. So it, it's a big central city, like a London or a New York, a, a big trade harbor, uh, lots of activity both overland and seaborne. Uh, and so they're a, a very practical turn of mind, and they have problems, all kinds of problems, right? For instance, they don't know how to draw maps very well. Well, if you want to trade over the ocean, what you would really like is a good map with maybe some tide markings on it. That would be excellent. Um, so that you could do this more regularly. And so they start working on these things. Um, and what they give birth to is what becomes known as natural philosophy. Thales and Anaximander are the founders of the schools of natural philosophy, Anaximander being the most important person there. So he's born, again, about 600, and he posits. Now this is one breakthrough that's almost hard for us to imagine. So up to this point, like I said, you've got the narrative myths that we've had. Egypt has similar creation myths, very different set of gods, but, but similar. If you go into Persia, they have the Zoroastrian myths, slightly different, but still you've got creators, you have these sort of anthropomorphic gods doing anthropomorphic things. And Thales, but more importantly, Anaximander says, you know what, I think that's not right. It comes up with two great ideas. One, I don't think the world is chaotic, I think the world is orderly. Now, in the ancient world, this is the dumbest thing you could say. 
They're like, okay, plagues, famines, war, drought. We don't know how the tides work. Every once in a while, the sun goes dark for God knows what reason. Uh, you know, what are you talking about? It's an orderly world. And he said, no, no, the early natural philosophers, and, and, and it's like for us, where we are today, it's hard to imagine what an incredible breakthrough this was. To go, no, I think underlying this apparent chaos that we live in is a set of orderly rules that drives everything. And what we should be doing is figuring those out. Again, this has, runs into two problems. It runs counter to all human experience, which is why it's sort of an amazing breakthrough in thought. And two, it runs counter to all the religions. Locally here, the Persian religion, the Egyptian religion, and this will come up repeatedly. So Socrates is not the only guy that gets put to death for this or has to flee. But what, you're, what he ends up saying is, look, ah, and, and this is gradual. He doesn't deny the gods initially, but in, what you can see in what he's doing is the absolute germ of denying the gods. In, in implication, all the religious people recognize this immediately. That's why they started getting into immediate trouble. He's like, oh no, I believe in the gods. I just believe in this other thing too. Uh, and pretty soon it takes until you get to Epicurus, who's more or less the first person in history who says, all that god stuff is nonsense. They didn't like him either. Uh, but, but this breakthrough, this positing of an orderly world, which underlays everything we see. And this is two elements. One, it's material. He called this the aperion or aperion. Anybody speaks Greek, please help me out. The aperion, which is this material stuff that everything in the universe is made out of. Everything rises from it, and everything will be reconsumed into it. Again, the implications of this are, 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 are radical for, for the time. One, it means if you can figure out how this stuff works, you can figure out how everything works. And so the weight placed on careful observation, uh, uh, careful measurement, attention to detail, just grows immediately. And again, this was, grew out of their problem with all the technical problems they faced. This was a very hands-on culture. They're trying to solve real technical problems. Um, two, it means this myth of teleology is gone. The world doesn't get better. The world doesn't change. Whatever rules operate in the Epirian are all the rules there ever are. How the world was 10,000 years ago is how the world will be today, is how the world will be in 10,000 years. It posits a constant set of rules that govern the entire universe forever. I mean, this is, I mean, this is the foundation of modern science, and, and it's Thales and Anaximander, particularly Anaximander, who just sort of go, you know what I think? I think this. <laughs> I have no evidence. But here's why I think it. And they start working. This is the crucial thing, is they start working hard to, to, to figure this out. Now, they come up with some crazy things. Uh, because, of course, they're starting from ground zero, and they don't have a lot to work with. Um, but a few of the observations I, I wanted to point out that they do make, one is they think men must have arisen from fish. Which is amazing. And they, they thought this for a couple of reasons, but primarily, wherever you look in the Greek world, 
you find seashells, tops of mountains, middle of mountains, seashore. And so they said, well, logically enough, everything must have been underwater at some time. Whole world must have been underwater. At least our world must have been underwater. Hence, we must have evolved from fishes. A very straight, reasonable chain of deduction. Also, there's these things called mud sharks, which the ancient Greeks were fascinated by. But they lay an egg and then take it back inside of them with an umbilical cord. And so they saw these things and they went, that looks like a sort of creature that would be somewhere between egg-laying fish-type things, which they knew about, and humans that have umbilical cords and are womb-born. And so they just, Anaximander, early, posits, hey, look, we must have come from fishes. Now, he didn't have a lot of good evidence for that, but, but again, this is the beginning. This is where they just start looking and saying, well, what can we observe? What can we deduce from what we observe? Assuming the world universe is more or less constant and the rules never change, which again is exactly contrary to everything that had been taught. Also, it levels gods and men. Because it's not that gods are immortal and men are immortal. They operate by their rules and laws. We operate by our rules and laws. Anaximander, as far as we know, never explicitly said there weren't gods, but the clear implication, if everybody operates by the same rules, by the same material stuff, then we must be the same. Everything must be essentially the same. It also makes the primary interest of your intellectual research matter. Because the matter of this table is the matter that I'm made out of, is the matter that this mud shark is made out of, is the matter that the stars are made out of. Notice what an incredible, again, this is like a mind-boggling breakthrough. Because if anything was clear in the ancient world, stars are not made out of the same stuff that I am. Why would you think that was true? What possible reason could you have for thinking that? But they made this huge intellectual leap and they said, no, I think it all comes from the Empyrean. Um, and when it rises from the Empyrean, it all shares, say, shares the same material origin. Therefore, it's the same matter. Therefore, when you study matter anywhere, you're studying some form of matter that makes up everything. So you can learn about the humans from studying dogs or from trees or from the ocean or from the sky, all connected. A big unity. Everything is one. So that is just, like I said, amazing intellectual breakthrough that launches half of, of the philosophical growth, growth of the ancient Greek world and was a profound, profound break with the thinking that had come before. Now we know Anaximander wrote a book. We have a catalog from the Library of Alexandria and a couple of other writers that refer to it, but we have no extant writing from Anaximander. There's one two-sentence passage that may be from him, but that's very controversial about whether it actually is something that he wrote or something that somebody wrote based on what they had read that he had written. <coughs> and so most of the information that we get about him, like Pythagoras, will come to us from Aristotle and other ancient sources, second, third, fourth hand. But what is clear is these, is these significant breakthroughs. 
It's a material world, universal laws, origin in the same. There's no development. <coughs> All material things are, are equal. Uh, besides, we're evolving from fishes. Uh, as far as we know, Anaximander was also the first person to posit that the Earth floats in basically a void. Well, it floats in the vacuum version of the Epirian, free in space, which again is silly. If, if anything clear of the ancient world, if, if I set down this cup, I have to set it on something. And here's Anaximander going, no, it just sort of hangs there. <laughs> And everybody said, what? I mean, like I said, the ancient world had all kinds of great ideas, like, you know, it floated on a turtle. And the turtle swam in a sea. And it's like, well, what's underneath the turtle? You know, it's turtles and turtles all the way down, right? Uh, it, but it, but, or it was on the back of Atlas. You may be familiar with this myth. Um, but it, clearly, the, things don't just float in space. And Demander said, no, I think so. He also thought the Earth was a sphere. Not a sphere, but a tube. And was probably hollow in the middle. Um, this created all kinds of problems for his attempt to do cosmology. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's, that's the main breakthrough. To, to break with this anthropomorphic view of the world, the world is not ruled by human-like gods. It is going in no direction. It's basically defined by the matter. And if you study the matter, you'll learn about the world because everything is the same. Huge breakthrough. Yep. If you look at um, group behavior, like you look at the causes of war. No, that'll be wait till Aristotle. And when we get to Aristotle, that's really well Plato to a certain extent, but really Aristotle. But we're on our way to that. Yeah. So the second guy I want to talk about is Pythagoras. Everybody's heard of Pythagoras? Yeah. Okay. So Pythagoras um, is almost an exact contemporary of Anaximander. And he is born in Samos. And this is important in about 570. Uh, this is important because Samos at this time becomes, in his lifetime, becomes a very wealthy trading island. And if you look at the map, if you go straight down from Miletus, you'll go across a little isthmus and you'll see a big island. That big island is Samos. It's just off the coast of Lydia. So again, same trade routes, same major thoroughfares as Miletus. Um, Samos becomes ruled by a guy named Polycrates. Polycrates is a tyrant. Uh, but he's a very efficient tyrant. And so Samos becomes wealthy on trade. And, and this is one of the things that begins to create a problem. If you've read the Homeric... <coughs> Odyssey and Iliad, you realize that they didn't do a lot of business dealings. Um, you know, Agamemnon and Achilles were not like, I tell you what, if you give me 50 bucks, someone kick your ass. Right? It was not about money. It wasn't like, I'll sell you some stuff. It was all about violence, inflicting violence, or, 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 or being prevented from inflicting violence on various people for various reasons. Well, how do you translate that ethical system into a new world which is really based increasingly on technical ability to sail, navigate, know the wind and stars, tends what's going on in the Miletian school. And now you have wealth. You have poets. You have writers. 
cloth, you're importing silks from Persia, right? All the trade is, is coming up and people are like, well, you know, this ethical system based on stabbing each other is bad for business. <laughs> it really sort of upsets the balance of the social order. Is there a way that we can move away from that? And one of the first thinkers to specifically basically say, look, this Homeric ideas are stupid, we should do something else, is Pythagoras. And Pythagoras is great because he combines all kinds of things that you would think you couldn't combine. He was a religious nut, a mystic, a abstract mathematician, and a politician. <laughs> right, and he was successful at all of them, which you would think, how can that be? But he was right there at the origin. These things hadn't separated out. Well, he doesn't get along with Polycrates. Um, we don't know exactly why, but he leaves. But probably the reason why is because he was an ascetic, and he believed in right action and, and, and justice. And Polycrates was a wealthy um, tyrant who believed that he should get what he wants, and everybody else should shut up or get stabbed. Um, and so Pythagoras said, I tell you what, I'll leave. And he travels what for the ancient world was a pretty good distance over to Croton. Now you see Italy over there all the way on the left of the map. If you look, if you see the heel sticking down and you see a little bay there, that right at the tip of that bay opposite the heel, right the, where the foot begins, that's Croton. And he sets up shop there. He's about 40 at this point. So he has to flee Polycrates. One assumes he didn't choose to voluntarily migrate. We don't know exactly why he left again, but given his, his history from this point on, it becomes pretty clear. Um, and when he gets there, he, he's pretty welcomed with open arms. And the first thing he does, is he sets up a new constitution for them based on an aristocracy, which... It's not really a democracy, but when what you had before was a tyrant system, having sort of an oligarchy or an aristocracy. Aristocracy, by the way, literally means rule of the best. Um, of course, best always means richest people with most armies. Uh, but uh, in this case, the ideal of it is, hey, we get educated, learned people who, who are probably wealthy and landholding, and we organize them into a small group, and they rule. Uh, and it's clear that Pythagoras set this up. He set up a new constitution. He actually minted a new form of money, never been seen before. Pythagoras did that personally. <clears throat> We're pretty clear on that. The archaeological evidence is very clear. Um, and he sets up this new state. And then he sets up the Pythagorean Brotherhood, which is a strange mystical cult dedicated to numbers uh, and various other things. And here's where we have sort of two crucial things. One is the politics, which we'll get back to. He was very interested in politics. But let's go to the, the numbers now. Um, one of the things that Pythagoras is credited with discovering is the, uh, if you heard music of the spheres, people have heard this term. This is Pythagoras. He discovered that if you have a ratio of strings of one to two, that makes the pleasing octave. If you have the ratio of three to two, which I'll try and get roughly right, that makes a fifth. And if you have a three to four, that makes the interval of a fourth in the length of strings. And you get the harmonies, the octave, fifth, and the fourth. You make music like that. Uh, now, to Pythagoras, this was 
mind-blowing. Absolutely, he comes, comes back to this notion again and again and again. Because it, what it suggests, not suggests, what he argued it absolutely meant, is look, underneath everything, just like the Miletians, what's going on underneath? The Miletians said there's this matter underneath that we can study and understand. Pythagoras said, no, there's numbers underneath. Everything in the universe is numbers. And if we can understand the numbers, then we'll understand everything in the universe. If you're familiar with modern uh, mathematical physics, this is precisely the argument they still make to this very day. Pythagoras is the father, literally the founder of this idea. We can pretty much trace it right to him because of this breakthrough. And notice what this does. To them, this was amazing. You also get here one, two, three, four. And one, two, three, and four, if you add them up, get you ten. At this point, they're like, well, hell, this has got to be true. <laughs> if they've ever thought, were any doubt at all that this was true, I mean, this is true. So you have this numerical, seemingly abstract numerical relationship that produces, explains something that was never explained up to that time, which is the harmony of various tuned strings. And then it adds up and gives you this very orderly system, and boom, now we're rolling. So they start looking for numbers everywhere. But if, if you can look at anything, look at the work that Einstein was doing. Einstein's basic argument, and many other physicists as well, is we'll work with the equations. When we get something out of the equations, if we've done our math right, that will be true. And then we test it. See how strange that is, really? You would think you would do it the other way around. This is the difference between theoretical versus practical physics or any other branch. Some scientists go out and do research, they find data, then they try to figure out what it means. Mathematical physicists and others, they do the math, and they say whatever the math comes up with will probably be right. If you do it right, it will absolutely be correct. And this is what the Pythagoreans said. This is a staggering idea. Notice how bizarre this is. The fact that it works is even more bizarre. But notice how, how absolutely astounding of a concept this is. Um, that these abstract relationships produce actual explanative power in the real physical world. I mean, it really not, it so knocked them off their feet that they were able to form an incredibly powerful and long-lived secret brotherhood based on these kinds of reasonings. Now, you, everyone's familiar with the Pythagorean theorem, right? A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Probably Pythagoras didn't come up with that, but we'll ascribe it to him anyway. Like I said, at this point, the document is so hazy on a lot of this that we may as well give it to him. Um, what's funny about that is the Pythagoreans hated this. Because look, you take these nice numbers and you get beautiful harmonies. Let's take our two, like two and three. Those are nice numbers. So if we make a triangle with this beautiful harmonious relationship of two and three, guess what that side's going to be? Square root of 13. <laughs> this is not the kind of number you want if you're a Pythagorean. So the first thing they did is went, <laughs> Six. <laughs> but, but then people went back and they said, that shit ain't six. We're smarter than that. And so they went back and said, oh man, there's a square root of 13. <laughs> and that caused all kinds of problems for generations of Pythagorean thinkers. Yeah, but, but one, it was an amazing discovery, nonetheless. But it really, they hated this. They did not like this breakthrough. 
amazing mathematical breakthrough that Pythagoras is famous for, which is what's hilarious about it. They liked this. Nice ratios, whole numbers, real numbers. They do not want abstract or irrational numbers. They certainly don't want imaginary numbers. Good Lord, they didn't do that. So you, you have this astounding breakthrough. But what this means, this is what's important to distinguish between the Boletian school and the Pythagorean school, both of which, again, were influential for hundreds of years. Do I have an eraser? I don't have an eraser. Yes, I do. Well, there it is. If, if you look at it like this, so something that's not really wood, let's say if you look at wood, and you look at a table and a chair that are made from wood, wood is the matter, it's the material substance. This is what the Miletians were, were interested in. They were interested in material things. Oh, thank you. interested in the material goods, right? The wood itself is what they wanted to study. The Pythagoreans were not interested in that at all. They were interested in form. This is matter, and this is form. Chair and a table is not a thing. It's an organization of matter by an idea. Like we have the idea of what a chair is. And we have the idea of what a table is. Uh, but it's not wood, right? Wood is not table or chair. So if you just substitute form as in one and two for anything, they were interested in, in the structural form of things defined as numbers. Whereas the Miletian school was interested in matter, the actual physical stuff. If you want to know things, you study matter here. If you want to know things, you study form in the Pythagorean school. Again, uh, the foundation of the hard sciences, the foundation of metaphysical philosophy and mathematics. It's, it's, it's just clear as an absolute bell. This is the origins in the Miletian and the Pythagorean schools. The split between those that people often describe to Descartes or they say, you know, this is a modern development. No, this started day one. Because as soon as you start thinking about this, you have to say, well, what do we want? What do we think is most important? Do we think it's matter, physical stuff, experience you can touch, or at least posit that you can touch? Or is it structure, organization, ideal categories, numbers, mathematics? So that, that physical, metaphysical split takes place again. It's, it's, it's sort of amazing to see day one, all the problems that we have today. Uh, they're right there at the origin. Right. So the other thing that, that the, the Pythagorean school comes up with, besides uh, absolute emphasis on form, is uh, proofs. They set out the rules for mathematical proofs. Again, probably Pythagoras was responsible. You know, this evidence is tricky to trace to back to him because he was the founder of a great and important school, and so his followers tend to ascribe everything to him. Right, and so it just it, this happens in all kinds of schools, um, and so lots adhere to him. But this seems to be something that was likely that he would have come up with, which is the notion that if you're interested in um, balancing your checkbook, you look at how much money you have, how much you've spent, and how long until that check is going to clear. All right. <laughs> well, if what they were interested in is in the abstract notion of balancing all possible checkbooks in all time in all history. 
Again, as far as we know, first people or person to do this was the Pythagoreans. You can go back to the ancient Babylonians who had this sort of weird solution for quadratic equations for finding the areas of very strange land masses. But it was written in the form of pace four steps this way, then turn and pace two steps that way. It was not a general solution. It was a physical acting out at the end of which you could count your steps and divide by the number of cows and sheep over here, and you would come up with a rough guesstimate. Now that's a workable solution, but it's not an abstract solution to all possible versions of that kind of problem, which is one removed from that. And this is what the Pythagorean school does. A squared plus B squared equals C squared solves for all possible right triangles. Notice there's absolutely no use for solving for all possible right triangles. This is a stupid thing to have if what you're interested in is in building crap. Because, I mean, whoever built anything like this in the ancient world? We want something that has one inch here and 17 miles there. But you can solve that with this equation, even though no one ever wants to solve that. Right? That's the power of abstract mathematics. It will solve things you don't want. Um, yes. If any of you are studying math, you may have this feeling. No, but what it does do is it gives you insight, profound insight into the relationships between forms. How sort of large, complex bodies interact with each other in all possible manifestations. So huge, profound breakthrough for a conceptualizing and reconceptualizing the world as represented by abstract equations and forms. So that's sort of, for Pythagoras, that's kind of half of his legacy. The other half of his legacy goes back to what I mentioned before. Here you are, you have the Homeric epics are everywhere held up as the ideals. Uh, somebody asked about local gods. The local heroes were all your local <coughs> fighters, generally. They were the generals that you had in the past who were the meanest and the best. They were the guys who won the Olympic Games, by the way. There's a couple of boxers in the Olympic Games who won so many events that eventually they turned them into demigods. They worshipped them while they were alive and built temples to them when they were dead. Um, but it was always or almost invariably about fighting and killing, the Homeric ideal. This is how you became a local god or demigod or saint equivalent. Pythagoras said, no, this is done. This is, this is not the way to do it. So his second notion is to come up with basically the first clearly articulated or one of the earliest clearly articulated notions of private ethics. He said a couple of things. One, the soul is immortal. Notice this is not terribly far from Anaximander's idea that, that we rise up and return to the Epirian. Our stuff is immortal. For Pythagoras, not surprisingly, the more abstract concept, not our material stuff, but some thing we can't feel like numbers, our soul, is immortal. And it transmigrates. Which means that we're born again and again and again with the same soul. It also transmigrates into animals. So you can be reborn as an animal rather than a man. Hence, they, we'll talk about this in a second, they be, you know, vegetarianism becomes pretty important to them. 
So you're immortal, your soul transmigrates. The quality of this is based on your behavior, your ethics. And that the purpose of philosophy and thinking is not to build better boats, natural philosophy, figure out the tides, understand the wind and the rain, understand the stars. The purpose of philosophy is to understand how to live better so that when your soul transmigrates, which is immortal, that process works better. Exactly whether they thought we came back as richer, happier, healthier people, or whether you eventually stopped being reborn and became an immortal god yourself, is not quite clear. It depends on what point in the Pythagorean school you are, who's reporting what they believed, because it was a secret society, so a lot of this is, you know, second and third hand. So immortal transmigration, and that this process is governed by how you behave in the world, personally. So you become an ethical agent who must decide for yourself, I would say his or herself, except for, who cares about women? Uh, at this point, not until we get to Epicurus, do we care about women? Uh, so you got a couple hundred years to go. Hang in there. Uh, we'll get to you. Uh, 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 um, you are you are responsible, and so philosophical introspection becomes about right action. And how do you figure out what right action is? Back to the mathematics. You use your reason. So, it, in, in a single blow, overthrows just about everything everybody else in their world believed in. This is why it had to be a secret cult. Secret cult, maybe not right. Secret society. And this spread all throughout the ancient Greek world. Uh, at the end of Pythagoras' life, there was uprisings in many cities simultaneously against the Pythagoreans. Many of the adherents were killed. The government in, in uh, Croton was overthrown. He had to flee. He died a little further on. But what this had the effect of doing is as all the Pythagoreans are fleeing, they just spread out their Pythagorean ideas all over the Greek world. It really had no impact. If anything, it actually increased the impact of Pythagorean thought on the ancient Greek world. Um, but once you have this notion that right action depends on reason, the condition of your soul, which is continually reborn, grows out of this, then reasoned reflection as an individual and you're individually responsible, becomes crucial. The only two models, again, that existed in the ancient world at this time were one, the Homeric God model, which is like the prayer rules. You just, you go, you sacrifice the goat, hey, you're in, you're in good shape as you're going to get. You don't know what the gods are going to do, but at least you did your part, and you shrug your shoulders and walk on. If anybody's heard of the Orphic or Eleusis mysteries, um, these were uh, called mystery cults. There were a bunch of them all over the ancient world. Um, and they usually meant you went to Eleusis or you did something and you, know, you drank the potion, you danced the dance, you sang the songs, and you were done. You hadn't experienced that experience. To the extent that you could be saved, you were saved. You, it didn't matter how you lived. It didn't matter what you did. Pythagoras said this was nonsense. How you lived and what you do is what matters. And he had a lot of rules. Like I mentioned, vegetarianism. Also, don't eat beans. This is a controversial one because it's not clear exactly what he meant by this, but there's a lot of evidence that what he meant by this was don't eat beans. Um, brush the form of your body out of your bed. 
Um, don't let your uh, nail clippings and hair clippings hang around. You want to burn those. Um, a lot, I mean, a lot of rules, some of which make sense about um, you know a healthy diet, restricting yourself from violence. A lot of it is just sort of like, what the hell is he talking about? Hard to know. Um, avoid odd numbers. Because <laughs> there were even numbers and odd numbers. They didn't have zero in the ancient world, so they had even numbers and they had odd numbers. And they thought odd numbers were odd, and so you want to avoid them if at all possible. Uh, and and you know, lots of rules about how you put your sandals on because you have an even foot and an odd foot, and so you want to put your even foot on first, not your odd foot on. Um, and so some of this is quite odd. Yes? Is, do you think it's true that there was no concept of zero at the time? Yeah, no, absolutely. They had no concept of zero. Yeah, the earliest concept of zero, as far as we know, is, is Hindu mathematicians. Um, who, are, who are way ahead. And the reason you know this is because it creates, I mean, as you can imagine, it makes your math weird and hard. <laughs> and so when you see them struggling through a perfectly simple problem, you go, oh, they don't have a zero. They're screwed. Right? Uh, that's, and, and so this created innumerable walls that they couldn't figure out how to scale uh, because they just you know, don't have a zero. And then when they get negative numbers, they're really in business. What's the back thinking, the scholarly back thinking about why that concept would never come to them? That came out uh, of chaos. This is, this is a great idea. I mean, a, a crucial idea, if we want to go in a little deeper in this, uh, is probably religious prescription because early counting is always coordinated with an object. Because, again, this is back to the abstract mathematics. No one ever counted x squared sheep. They always want to know how the hell many sheep there are. All our early record keeping, the first thing that's written down, by the way, people go, oh, business today, business bill. I'm like, look, man, you go back, it's business all the way through. The first thing people are writing down is how much stuff is in the granary, how much, how many sheep were brought in, how much were they sold for, how many do we have left. This is the, all early written documents are almost invariably big storehouse lists and trading lists and receipt bills and all this crazy stuff, money, money receipts. Uh, so that's the first thing you get. Well, what, what do you, you need a zero for? He brought in zero sheep. No, you don't write that down. <laughs> right? Because they had no notion that there was this correlation to nothing. And in most ancient civilizations, the Greeks were very much this way, but also the Persians, also the Egyptians, there was a prescription about thinking about not. Like a vacuum. This is why Anaximander's breakthrough that the earth just sort of hangs out there. It's really an amazing insight because it suggests that there's this nothingness. Remember, at the turn of the century, Michael and Morley, Morley, Michael and Michelson and Morley, huh, yeah. there we go, ran a famous experiment that disproved the existence of an ether. Because in 1900, it was still hard to really get our heads around the notion that there might just be a big vacuum out there. Right. So that's you know 2,500 years later. We're still struggling with this issue. Uh, and it may not be true, but, but it looks like it is true. Uh, and so the not has always been a struggle. Um, and so the widely, uh, the general use of zero does not come about until, I want to say like the 1500s. I can look that data up. But it's really late in the game. And that's because of, we think, because of double entry bookkeeping again. Uh, <laughs> and then you really need to have a zero. And so it becomes widely used. Um, because of advances in, in record keeping and sophistication of trade. So it's a good point because there's all these barriers that have been broken through for us, 
as far as thinking about the world that we don't recognize anymore. But this is the historical record of these guys sort of stepping back and going, look, maybe matter at all times is ruled by the same laws. Again, this is an astonishing, and in fact at the time, preposterous uh, hypothesis um, that turns out to work pretty well. Excuse me. Yeah, so this is, this is what's going on. So this breakthrough of private ethics, as goofy or as, as great you think as ethics are, the key thing is that it was private. That is no longer the Homeric epics. It's not the state telling you what to do. It's that you would posit that your behavior is ruled by guidelines that you take on for yourself based on your reasons. Let me tell you, this is not even that popular today. <laughs> as, as far as I can tell, this is sort of like this. You know. Uh, and and, and now the, the funny thing about Pythagoras, of course, is he thought he was right and everybody should take on his ideas. He wasn't like everybody should reason out their own. He, he suggested that, but if, he also said that if you do reason, what you'll do is realize that I'm right. Uh, so we're not, we're not, this is, this is Socrates' breakthrough, by the way, but who, who did not say that. Um, but at this point, this is still a, a huge, like quantum leap to say it's not what the tyrant says. He flees Polycrates, which is what you used to have. It's not even what the aristocracy says. It's not what Homer and the gods say, or the priests in the temple. It's what your reason and your experience tells you is the right action. And all of this happens, Pythagoras and these schools, um, in about 70 years. Both Anaximander and Pythagoras were alive at the same time. It probably didn't influence each other because their thinking was running very different lines. Um, but this is a, a, an unbelievable transformation and one that spread immediately. These guys were talked about in their lives. We do have references to them from uh, sources contemporaneous with them. And when you think about how few documents we have from this period, this is about 600 BC. If you are remembered in references, that means you are being referred to probably a lot because so few have come down to us. It's like if, if, if uh, all the big fire swept the United States and only 2% of the books survived, you know, a lot of them are going to be Tom Clancy. <laughs> right? I mean, and so a thousand years from now, historians would go, well, that Tom Clancy was a hugely influential thinker. Which would be embarrassing for us, but what are you going to do? Uh, but you, you see how that works, right? And so the, the notion that we do have references from all over the ancient world to, to both of these thinkers is significant. Um, okay, so um, to sort of wrap up, so that was a lot, right? So, but, but here's, here's the sort of takeaway uh, part of this is you go from a system, and this is not just true in the Greek world, but if you were, if you were in China at this time, which has a very advanced and growing civilization, if you were in uh, the Harappan civilization is spread down in the Indus Valley at this point, developing very rapidly. In fact, if you read Pythagorean and, and Hindu tradition, they're very close. Um, and there, there is some evidence that Pythagoras may have influenced uh, the development of Hinduism because, of course, Greeks ruled parts of India for a, a good period of time, thanks to Alexander, who took over everything again, uh, and left Greeks there to run it for a long time. So you'd have, it's like the British Empire, where you have you know, 20 Greek guys and 5 million other people, but they influenced everybody because they ran the place. Um, 
But it's not clear. It may have gone the other way, but probably not. They may have just developed these ideas independently. Yeah. The dates on the map. Dates on the map. Oh, those are the next lectures. Oh. <laughs> I'll get to those. I'll get to those. Yeah, right. That's right. I just, I just wanted you people to have the next lectures. So the, so the key thing to take away is so you're in this system of, of teleology. The world is going someplace it's developing. You have uh, the world rising out of chaos. Uh, ruled by anthropomorphic gods who may or may not listen to us, but they probably do occasionally at least. Human beings cannot rise to the level of gods. Notice in both the Miletian system and the Pythagorean system, you have an immortal soul, which makes you essentially a god. And what you're doing with your ethical actions is raising yourself in your transmigrations to the level of the gods, which is to say there are no gods, right? If everybody can be a god, you know, are there really gods? So this... Um, System of, of God separated from men, natural process that we don't want to think about or worry about, just, um, is, gets two really or three really amazing blows, one right after another. From the Miletian school, again, this is a school, not just Anaximander, it goes on. You get the foundations of natural philosophies. Uh, the notion that the world is matter. At this point, they had not divided, they're, they're called hylozoists, if you would like the official term, but that means they had not separated the notion of in, organic and inorganic or spirit-driven and, and non-spirit-driven matter. But the world is matter, and you study matter to learn about everything because everything is matter. Huge advance there. Um, from the Pythagorean side, you get this emphasis on personal ethics because of the immortality of the human soul, and that behavior determines that process. And, not unrelatedly, this, this move towards mathematical abstraction. That understanding forms, rather than worrying about uh, you know, irrational gods or, or various patterns, but forms that you study based on mathematical logic, which is to say human reason, um, will produce the results that you want. Both of these are... are quantum steps away from the traditional thought systems and behavior systems of the societies in which they're born, and they point directly to, like I said, what we have, not only in what we'll get to in the Greek world, but what we have today, which is the foundations of natural philosophy and the insistence that everything is matter. And when you get to Democritus, by the way, if you've heard that guy, he's famous as an atomist. Those are the fellows who then said, like, look, no, matter is in fact inanimate and that you're studying mechanical processes. And so that's sort of the final step in that development. But it started by Anaximander. And then the emphasis on personal ethics, not state ethics, not religious ethics, um, and the use of reason and abstract rationality and mathematics to think about things is kicked off almost simultaneously by Pythagoras. And those are the two chains that are going to cross and be at war with each other as we move through the next ones, which will be Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, Plutarch, and Seneca. Ha, there you go. Thank you very much. Yeah. So, so I told you.